Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Michael, and we are back today with another episode of Dining Hall Talk, uh, the podcast where we talk about things with the depth uh, and insight, just like we would back in our college dining halls. And today, we have a very special episode for you all. Um, we're going to be speaking about uh, Black progress um, and all the progress that we've made as a community uh, since the Civil Rights Movement or since 1965. And uh, to talk about that with me today, we have two illustrious guests. Um, we all went to college, and we used to chop it up and have some real, some real conversations over some meals back in the day. Uh, and uh, so with that, um, I'll pass it off to Josh and Eric, respectively, for intros. So Josh, why don't you start off and, uh, and, and give a little intro? Yeah. Hi, I'm Josh. Um, I am class of 2021. Um, I studied government and African-American studies at the college, so most of my um, sort of studies revolved around uh, sort of legacies of Jim Crow and really diving into like the institutions of the Old South, um, which is very interesting. I'm from Mississippi. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I'm currently teaching at a charter school in D.C. to 30 to 20 amazing third graders. Um, and, and yeah, I'm long-term interested in law school and going into the legal field. Perfect. All right, Eric, pass it off to you. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Eric. I was also in class of 2021 at Harvard uh, alongside Josh. I studied environmental science and engineering along with a secondary in government. Uh, and most of my studies there were kind of focused on environmental health issues. So air pollution issues, lead in drinking water, those kind of concerns. Um, I am now back home uh, in my home state of New Jersey and working as a community organizer in Philadelphia, uh, focused on building youth political power and improving youth civic engagement across the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, and I'll be attending law school somewhere in the fall to uh, hopefully keep working on some environmental issues, technology issues, health issues, and the like. Somewhere illustrious uh, for both. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't. I don't know what they said, but both going somewhere illustrious. We'll just. We'll just keep it at that. Ain't no regular law school out here. Um, all righty, y'all. Uh, well, thank you for giving those introductions. And um, I think the first question, and we could just kind of go around the horn and answer the question, uh, is, um, or actually to, to go into the structure a little bit. So uh, the kind of way we want to structure this is breaking down different categories of progress. So we're going to be speaking about economic progress, social progress, political progress, progress in terms of community unity, and then finally how we can move forward. Um, but before we kind of get granular into each category, we first uh, want to ask the broad question, which is, um, have we and in what ways have we as the black community made progress since the civil rights movement? Um, and so uh, I'm very open to anyone going first, but if somebody wants to jump in, give an answer, and then we can all go around and, and give our answer. Eric, I'm going to pick on you. You go first. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we've had a black president, and so I think uh, most of the work is done there. <laughs> um, I mean, certainly that's the view that a lot of people hold, right? But but in actuality, I think that it's it's hard to dispute the fact that broadly, I feel like we're in a better place now as a community collectively uh, than we were in 1965, certainly. But that is certainly 
kind of an oversimplification, which I'm sure we'll get into as this conversation unfolds, a lot of the details um, of why that that is really a mixed bag, right? As Black people, we still trail economically in this country. We still trail in education. Uh, we still trail in our in our freedom, right? Just in, in basic questions of liberty and of justice. But I think all of that can be combined with the fact that we're in a better uh, position and have better prospects than ever before. There are more possibilities for what Black people can do in this country than ever before. Um, and so I'm still hopeful. We've, we've made progress. There's a long way to go still, but I'm hopeful about where we're at. Yeah, no, I think I would tend to um, agree with that view. Um, so I'm from Mississippi. So obviously, if you compare, you know, 1960 Mississippi to, you know, today, it's much, much, much better for Black people. Um, just in terms of uh, uh, economically, yes, but especially uh, culturally, um, um, socially, thinking about um, just in general, like uh, sort of the the uh, the different codes that were that were ascribed to Black people within you know a given society, whether you can or cannot live in a certain place, right? You can or cannot um, um, go to a certain area after a certain um, um, time period. Right. And so, like, I think about, you know, just the fact that, OK, I'm, I, I can pretty much walk the streets back home and like not fear, you know, any kind of violence coming my way. Right. I can um, I, I, I can, you know, go out and go to a bank and like apply for a loan for a house if I had the money. I don't have the money now, but <laughs> but, but, but 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 apply for a loan uh, uh, from the house and not automatically get rejected because of my skin color and things like that. Right, so I think like you look at broadly, right, culturally, sure there's been progress. I think we'll probably get into it later, but thinking specifically about like economically, specifically about wealth, like there hasn't been much progress um, over the past 40, 50 years um, in terms of the black-white wealth gap. Um, that's you know still uh, very much uh, the same as it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, but just generally, socially, culturally, yes. Yes, much progress. Much in terms of life, in terms of life outcomes. Growing up black, you would much rather grow up black today than you would 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, etc. One hundred percent. I think my take is pretty similar. Um, is that I largely agree that black people are in a better position today um, than they were in 1965, primarily in terms of broad scale access, right? There, there are doors that are open to us and places that we can go um, and, and ways that we can engage and uh, places that our culture has influence, um, which were not broadly available to us um, in 1965. Uh, but there are still a lot of areas where progress hasn't been made in the same way. Um, like one of the big areas is um, in terms of closing the black-white wealth gap is that that hasn't really narrowed uh, substantively since the 1960s. Uh, the home ownership rate hasn't substantively narrowed. Um, and so there's still like a lot of areas where we have a lot of room to make um, improvement and drive better outcomes. But unquestionably, I'm glad I was born today and, 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 not, in, and not in 1965. So... Uh, awesome. Thank you all so much for those answers. Um, and I think the one of the, the interesting places where we might want to start uh, is actually specifically looking at economic outcomes um, in the Black community. 
Um, one of the areas where I think that like progress has been tougher uh, to come by and uh, where despite the visibility of prominent wealthy black individuals, um, there hasn't been as much progress for everyday black people or for uh, poor black people um, as we would like to see. So um, I can just... I, I can just kick it off and I, I, I'll pass it to uh, Josh this time to start off with and talk about uh, some of the gaps in economic opportunity um, to start. So, Josh, why don't you take us away there? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so you sort of kind of touched on it. The um, sort of major gap, right? The gap that, like, the reason, you know, a lot of, People are now, you know, ro- uh, lobbying for like reparations, things like that. The thing that, like, you st- you look at you like, man, is that like still a thing? <laughs> um, is obviously the uh, black-white wealth gap um, in terms of the fact that it's kind of, like not really changed <laughs> in the last like was it like uh, fifty years, um, and you know, largely due to um, disparities in you know home in uh, in a home ownership between. Um, black families and almost every other, um, well, between black families and white and and a uh, and a white family specifically, um, it's it's you know very interesting when you think about it because like at least um, most of most of the gaps uh, caused leading up to like the sixties, seventies, and eighties were very in, were were very intentional moves by either um, the federal government or the or or uh, the state and local governments, as far as like redlining laws, and um, and and um, and intentional moves by by um, banks to just like I'm not giving a loan out to um, to to um, to um, a black family um, and things like that. And so the fact that you know you had all that going in, uh, going on leading up to the '60s, and still 50 years later, a lot of those laws get get you know um, removed or overhauled right to make the process more more uh more fair right you have the fair um housing um um authority um established and you would you would figure that uh that would equate to you know you know 10 20 30 years later there would be a closing of this gap right but i think at least what i what i, what I saw and what, and what i've seen like through my through through all the books that i've read all the, all the studies that i looked at is that you look at a lot of these formal practices before it just became informal, right? That now you, the realtor they don't have a mandate to say, okay, I'm not going to place this black family in in this you know nice majority white neighborhood. I'm just not going to show them that house, right? I'm just going to um, sort of steer them somewhere else or a bank to say that okay, I'm not uh, uh, I'm not going to uh, I, I don't have you know specific laws I can point to to say okay, I can't you know give out you know this 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 um, loan to this black family. I'm just going to find any and every way to um, to um, to um, try and you know restrict whatever uh, recess um, from them, and and yeah, and I and I think like you see a lot of that sort of like a lot of those informal things play out, you know, leading up all the way up to today. And so you know, honestly, as as a black person that you know long term looks to like you know eventually like buy a house, it really you know kind of makes me think you know like. How do I approach this? Uh, uh, like, how do I approach this process? How do I approach a lot of these, a lot of these things? When you know, no one that um, I know outside of my parents, no, no other black person I know outside of my parents, you know, owns 
their own home. They've never gone through like this, you know, uh, uh, home buying process. And even for my parents, you know, there was the hundred year old house that they that their grandmother like built, right? And so like it's not like they had to like go apply for a loan at a bank or anything like that. And so like accessing these systems, accessing these institutions, um, I think is a gap for at least for me, and I'm sure for um, a wide range of um, people who are even less fortunate than me. Um, and so, yeah, I think that probably led to like a lot of uh, sort of the inequalities that we still see persisting today. Yeah, I think um, it's it's really interesting when you think about like how a lot of the American dream um, and a lot of the a lot of American wealth for everyday people is is centered around the ability to own property, right? Uh, the vast majority of Americans have a disproportionate amount of their wealth tied up in their home. Um, and the inability uh, of black people to access that in the same way or the inability of black people to have the same ease of accessing that in the same way has been a huge barrier. Because like when you look at like a lot of when you look at a lot of black movement, right? Black people effectively had to move to dense environments right because living out in rural areas for a lot of black people was not a safe proposition in 1965 and in certain ways is still not necessarily a safe proposition today and so there was this mass migration to the cities um and and more dense areas um and you know redlining was a practice up until the 80s as well as the fact that now um, you have the additional challenge of gentrification, um, which is nuanced. Like gentrification doesn't isn't necessarily all bad or all good, but it has a lot of outcome, a negative outcomes, especially when people don't own the properties or don't have enough income to sustain the property taxes. Um, and so, like black people have been at the center of macroeconomic trends that have made it much more difficult to own a home and have also uh, just been explicitly discriminated against in terms of home ownership. Um, and I think the other really interesting thing to talk about uh, outside of home ownership is the bifurcation of economic outcomes for black people. And what I mean is that, uh, you know, let's say the top 50th, uh, you know, the top half of black people, um, roughly, I don't, I don't know if this is the exact, are doing better, right? They have access to a lot more opportunity. They can go study in more schools. Um, they can go live in more places. They could go anywhere and and buy the clothes that they want, right? Um, but uh, the economic outcomes for um, kind of the bottom half of Black Americans uh, have have not increased, and in certain ways have gotten worse over time, right? Like you have things like deindustrialization, which made it impossible. Now, if you don't have like a college degree, right, and, and now they're even adding a college degree in the right majors, you're blocked off from a lot of economic opportunity. Where are you going to get a job that's going to pay you enough to support your family? Where are you going to get a job that's um, going to pay you enough to allow you to save? Or where are you going to get a job with a, a pension? And so um, we're kind of seeing this bifurcation of economic opportunity where, you know, all of us three went to Harvard and the world is our oyster in a way that it wasn't before. Right. Um, you know, uh, but for a lot of black people who don't necessarily have the same opportunity, might not have the opportunity to go to college or even get a great high school education. 
right? Uh, what are the options and what are the opportunities in store for them? Uh, so Eric, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that that's important to point out, Michael. Um, for so many reasons and, and in so many ways, I think we're, we're all kind of pointing to the same thing here, right? Which is that this progress to the extent there has been progress over the last five, five and a half centuries uh, or decades rather has largely been unequal, right? Even within the black community itself. Uh, it hasn't been spread evenly. And so as a result of that, uh, we have to then also think about, you know, clearly we're having this conversation in and of itself from a position of privilege, right? As you've said, yeah. we're, all, we're all Harvard graduates. We're all these young professionals with, with bright futures. The world is our oyster, as you've said. Um, but, you know, we're in a different position now as a Black community than we were in 1965, right? In 1965, things weren't going well for just about any of us, right? So collectively, mm -hmm. we were all kind of advancing uh, the same or at least similar agendas, even if going about it uh, in different ways. Now it's a little bit different, right? Because there are different interests at play for people who have seen varying levels of progress or lack thereof over the course of these last few decades. Um, and so it's important for us, you know, as we talk about issues like gentrification, for example, uh, issues that are ongoing that disproportionately affect Black people that continue to reproduce inequalities in housing and in economics, uh, that enforce and maintain racial segregation in housing and in schools, uh, and in other domains of life, important for us to think about also how uh, we might be contributing to that through some of the choices that we make, right, even as Black people. Um, and so these conversations get really nuanced in that way, and, and our listeners, or hopefully our Black listeners to this conversation also uh, have the opportunity to do some reflection and think about how they can advance uh, agendas of the Black community to uplift all of us, right? Absolutely. Um, and I think that's one of the key things and one of the themes that um, I hope we'll continue to touch on throughout this presentation is how the world through our eyes, you know, um, my listeners right now as of this moment are disproportionately going to be people that I know personally and people in similar circles than me. And it's important to think about how our perspectives, our view of the world, like even our frames of reference um, and our perception of opportunity or, or fairness right, um, can be radically different than those in different socioeconomic circumstances, right? And I think that's one of the things that's marked uh, the Black experience from 1965 onward is the way that some were allowed access um, and opportunity and others were, you know, arguably subjugated even further, maybe not through uh, explicit laws, uh, but through just more typical life, life outcomes, less economic opportunity, and acknowledging that and thinking about right, like um, holistically how we move the conversation, how how we move the conversation forward on how the black community can progress uh, is is crucially important um, because it's not enough that we have black people that go to Harvard or Yale or wherever, right? Um, if we're not able to progress as a community. And we're not able to um, intimately understand the struggles, right? Uh, not just theoretically, but like intimately in a very personal, deep way, the struggles of the community as a whole and make solutions that work for the community as a whole. Um, there, there's going to be a limit to the progress that we can make. Um, so I think that's been a really good conversation on economics. And I'd like to move on to uh, the next category, um, which is also very related 
to the uh, unity of the black community, which is how have we progressed as a community socially? And so uh, in kind of this realm of things, I want to consider a couple of factors. One is, uh, right, the grip that black culture has on American culture generally. Um, the second is the clarity of the black voice that stands apart from whiteness. Do we have people that speak specifically to the interests and needs of the black community? Um, uh, third is a little bit of nuanced topic, which is uh, broader integration. And if that comes at the cost of our voice as a community, um, and then I think the fourth topic is tokenization, um, and the ability to elevate, select individuals at the expense of elevating the community to have figureheads, so to speak. Um, and so these are just things I want to be ruminating in your head. Uh, and, uh, so Josh, you started off last one, Eric, I want you to start off this time. Do you think that we've made progress socially as a black community and reflecting on the questions? Uh, I just talked about. Yeah, as you as you listed through those categories, I'm I'm kind of trying to think of examples that come to mind for me of of yeah. different domains of the Black community where we might have seen some progress. Um, you know, so much of the way that we interact with each other now is done digitally, right, through social yeah. media. Um, so you know, you mentioned like, do we have a way in which the Black voice can still stand apart um, from whiteness? First thing my mind raised to was Black Twitter. We have Black Twitter, and and for those of you who are not... The black Twitter, the Black voice, though, that's another question. Let's, that's uh, And that's a hey, fair question go, go, to ask. Go, 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 go ahead, Eric. That's a fair question to, to ask, that's right? That's what I'm going to say. No. Is, uh, but, but go ahead. Is Black Twitter uh, the Black voice? Maybe, maybe not. But what I do think Black people are incredibly uh, talented at and always have been, right, is making do with less and being creative. Right. And Black Twitter is a way in which we are able to continue to engage with one another, continue to share our ideas, uh, continue to, to spread and share our joy. Right. Even yeah. in terms of times of darkness and in times of pain and times of suffering. Uh, and we do it in our own way. We do it in a way that one another uh, understands that sometimes other people try to co-opt. Right. There's there's this larger and broader kind of uh, fetishization of black culture that I think was, is also worth pointing out here. But to the extent that we're able to continue to be our own translators, control our own narrative, uh, I think we have made some progress there in, in finding. Yeah, Eric, um, I definitely hear you there. I think there's a, there's a way that we as a community have been so resilient and just been able to produce so much. Like when I think of American culture, right, I think of black culture. Like in your mind, think about the last time a dance was invented by a non-black person in America, right? Like so much of American culture is intertwined with black culture and emanates from black culture. Um, but I, I think there's also the other side of that, right? Which is as our culture has become more synonymous with American culture, um, the ability of black culture to be for and serve primarily black people has been compromised. And one of the things I think about a lot is uh, in, in rap music, for example, right? Uh, where like, you know, in the 80s and 90s, right? Hip hop was a lot more lyrical, right? And spoke to the black experience and a, a, a multitude of black experiences. 
some of it was, you know, the, the black experience of, of black people, you know, growing up in the hood and having to survive. Um, but it was, it was a music, it was an art form that was targeted towards our community. Um, whereas now, like, yes, black music still speaks to black experiences. Um, uh, but I have a suspicion and I think I'm not alone in this, that the people who are buying the most tickets are no longer black. Right. And so you go to a Kanye West concert, you go to a Jay-Z concert, you go to any of these multitudes of these artists concerts, right? And they can no longer solely consider the black voice when producing their music and their content because the primary economic supporters of their art forms are no longer black. And so what does that mean? What does that mean for the messages that come across now, right? Or what does that mean for like the content or the vibe of the music? Whereas white people are listening to this music to escape, right? Their everyday realities per se, right? It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a fairy tale land. It can no longer accurately represent the day-to-day realities for black people in the same way, because it is catered towards complementing the white experience rather than being a holistic representation of the black one. Um, And I think that that same line of logic and reasoning applies more broadly, whereas as we create more and even as we're elevated more in terms of American or white or global society, our ability to be a voice for us, by us, to some degree is challenged because you know, we're no longer the primary consumers of the cultural products we produce. Um, And I think that also ties into another conversation about um, kind of black ownership, right? Is that as it is undoubtedly profitable for major labels and major institutions to have black faces and black voices speaking to select black messages. Um, The existence of black creative organizations that exist for us and by us are declining, right? I think about Motown, right? And brothers could not sing anywhere else, right? And they made some fire music, right? They, They made some music that really touched your heart and touched your soul. Um, And now that people understand that black artists are marketable, right, that they can have staying power and that they can be listened to beyond primarily the black community um, or black adjacent communities, right? Um, I think that there's an aspect of, of losing a measure of true creative control. Um, And, Uh, The other thing, right, um, is like you mentioned black Twitter, and I do think black Twitter is a place where black joy or, you know, black expression um, is celebrated. But I think that nowadays there are a lot of black voices that don't have a lane in which they can operate in to be heard to the same extent, right? Um, Because I think black Twitter, right, like if you look at the demographics of, of Twitter and what Twitter like speaks to and you look at the microcosm that is black Twitter. There are a lot of black voices that are not represented in that conversation. Uh, certain older black voices, 
um, maybe uh, black voices from different um, academic or social backgrounds. And so I think that there's um, a lot of work that we as a community need to do and be aware of that as there's an attempt to assimilate and take more of black culture, that we're wary of one, tokenizing specific black individuals, right? And, or tokenizing certain classes of black individuals to the detriment of the broader black community and making sure that our voice, right, is heard and that we can still produce things that are biased for us and don't serve as messages that are complementary to whiteness, but are abstracted from and are able to reflect the needs, desires, the love, the care of our community to our community. And if people participate in that, I don't have a problem, right? Uh, but but I need them to make love songs like they used to. People are not singing like Marvin Gaye anymore. Oh. Right? So, uh, so, yeah, I guess. So, so, so talk to us about that. Job. So I want to uh, go back to the um, the bit about like comparing like sort of like what black artists are doing now versus like what they're what they what they used to do um, in previous generations. And I think like sure, uh, uh, since like you know the since like 50s, 60s, 70s, um, black culture in general, in terms of like rap and music like that has become a lot more cult- uh, commercialized as it's moved, you know, into the, in, into the mainstream. I remember growing up, you know, like I used to be like the only person that like the, used to be only black people that were like fans of rap music, but you can kind of see like middle, like sort of like upper elementary, middle school, all, all of a sudden everybody's listening to Lil Wayne and everybody's listening into like all these other like um like like a rap artist you can sort of see the shift there right um and you know there's no longer this like a uh, narrative talk about like okay well you know what was it like growing up in this you know particular uh, city what you know what was it like being this um um being you know being uh black in america but it was about like things that would be marketable things that would be you know, thing uh, uh, uh things that you know people will go out of the way to to to, uh, to spend money on there's less focus on message and more focus on dollars but with that said i feel like there are still like amazing like pillars you know that um despite you know the music you know coming in might not might not being you know you know not being you know uh, well, at least not appearing the most marketable still like coming through and like having like a solidified solid black message i think about guys like uh jay-z who i'm not the biggest fan of but was like a pioneer for was for uh for a lot of the j coles of the world and a lot of the kendrick lamars of the world i think also about kanye west um and and who was a pioneer for chance right and uh these you know these artists that for you know that even though you know the rest of the the the, the record labels tell them okay you know you got to put out this message and you got to spend this message you got to sell this right to make dollars for the record label they're like no i have my own message and i'll just keep going door to door i'll keep like giving people my mixtape until you know someone realized like oh this is amazing this is this is this is this is art and it's gonna blow up and it did right um but then also like i think you talked about like how like in previous in previous generations like the motown generation right that because they were only making product for black artists that you know all of the messages were like sent were like target towards the black community right and and like and like and like all the messages were like true and authentic messages and there was no sort of like uh attempt to appease or or assimilate or 
Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it that strongly. I wouldn't say that it's because yeah. uh, they had considerations as a label. But, um, yeah, I think generally yeah. it was able to because be, yeah, yeah yeah because it, it was wasn't as mainstream. It can be I I don't know if that's necessarily true because like I think about I think about just artists like you know like Sam Cooke or um, Ray Charles is a little bit more complicated, but specifically like Sam Cooke who is like super mainstream, right? They like he like went all over the country touring. Um, you guys probably don't know who Sam Cooke is. He's an amazing guy. But no, like, like he, like he went all over the country touring, right? Singing to black and white audiences. And like one of, one of the things that got him into a lot of trouble is the fact that he refused to, uh, re- refused to perform in, in uh, concert venues where, you know, the audience was segregated. He was like, no, like, I'm singing these songs about black people for black people. We're not going to have, you know, black people way in the back where they can't even hear my, like, no, we're not doing that, right? And he lost a lot of money for that. He lost, he lost, he lost a lot of dollars for that. So I guess I just want to push back on that idea, like, just because something is mainstream doesn't mean we still can't stand for something, right? Doesn't mean we still can't be socially responsible, uh, 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 socially responsible. Doesn't mean we still can't you know, create these genuine, authentic messages, you know, that really come from the heart. I, I think about, I was in a conversation with a professor one time, I'm not going to say the name, but he, he was, I was, uh, I told him I was from Mississippi and like he, you know, had a field day and was naming me, and was naming me all, the, and it was, it was, it was, it was like naming all the like amazing artists and geniuses that have came from Mississippi, right? And, uh, and then I, I think I named like someone, I was like, I was like, oh yeah, you know, this other person, you know, but they're, they're okay, but they're like, they're like from, uh, they're, they're like from South Carolina. I was like, yeah, but you know, those people in South Carolina, you know, they just don't have the same song that like Mississippi blues singers have. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting opinion. I wonder why is that? And he was like, yeah, because there's just something about, you know, growing up with, um, with, with, with the level of pain that, you know, Mississippi sharecroppers grew up with growing up with the level of, um, um, struggle that that a lot of the older black generations in Mississippi grew up with that produce um, a lot of this genius that we see in the blues and in, and, and in rocks and in, in gospel music and all and in, in a variety of genres, right? I um, mean, in literature, right? And that like a lot of art comes from pain. And, you know, I think that, you know, just because, you know, you get more dollars from music that sounds like Cardi B doesn't mean you can't like produce music and create music that, you know, teach the same themes as like a J. Cole or a Kendrick Lamar or et cetera. But. No, that's definitely true. I think there's, there is a lot of nuance to it. And I, I, I never want to pretend like it's all or nothing. Right. Um, like I never want to pretend like back in the day, because we were just making music kind of for us, so to speak, that the message was able to be clear because there were a lot of times when Motown was like, don't get political to Marvin Gaye even. Right. Um, um, and there are a lot of times today where you see like a lot of very pure artistic expression that I think speaks to our experience and uh, our, our community in a way that's uplifting. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of nuance there that we have to recognize. Uh, and there are a lot of people who did both. Right. There are a lot of people who um, spoke to right, uh, our truths then and there are still people speaking to our truths now. Um, but I can't help but in the back of my mind feel like in 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 people's minds, maybe it's 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 harder to now 
Like, do you feel like it's in any way, shape, and form harder? To, or do you feel to like it's make music yeah. that's more uh, socially responsible? To yeah, or, or that's central to that's, like to, not just social responsible, but the yeah. I mean, I mean, it's 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 weird. I feel like a lot of I've, I feel like a lot of artists make music that is like uh, that tells about their experience growing up you know, in the black community, but I don't, I don't feel like they do it in a, in a socially responsible way. That's why I wanted to ask about social, because I feel like a lot of, you see, a lot of rap is like talking about gang violence and talking about hood violence. A lot of, a lot of yeah. popular, a lot of rap that's elevated, right? Like a lot of the rap that is, is, is pushed on the community as a whole, because I'm not going to pretend, yeah, there sure, are plenty sure. of rappers that don't talk about that stuff, right? Like, there, there's plenty of people on my playlist, I'm sure on your playlist, but why is it that those individuals aren't able to pierce the mainstream in the same way? And my thought is always that it's because white people already have people talking about positive emotion. They, they already have their uh, Ed Sheeran's and I don't know. I, I don't I don't like I, I don't, everybody like, and again but they have those people that are representing those emotions for them you, like right and and so when the black experience comes in to be complementary to that what is the what is the part of the black experience that is not represented in the white experience and so i can't help in my mind but feel like the reason why some of these artists are elevated to mainstream status in the way they are right for rapping about these things is because that is what's not existing in the white experience and so that leads i think to to artists knowing and understanding that okay i rap about drugs or whatever right like that's something that Mm -hmm. that will get me to the mainstream because it is something that is not spoken about in the same way Mm. in the white or other communities and so by being complimentary to the experience and not representing the fullness, right, which includes some of those things, yeah. but uh, positivity. Yeah, but in, like, like also, I want to just like point out like just the way that a lot of like artists present. Because I feel like there's nothing wrong with like when t- in telling the black experience, telling a lot of like like talking about it. Like a lot of NWA was like, it's like right, right, right. it's real. It's, it's about real. like how it's you like real. present it's, that and like are you presenting it in like in a way that like you know, humanizes it and, like, humanize a lot of the victims of it? Or are you presenting in a way that's, like, catchy and fun and hype and, like, you know, presents this, like, sort of, like, I don't know, this, like, male stereotype that's just, like, you know, bad and hard and, and et cetera, like, um, yeah. and I feel like a lot of, a, a lot of people, a lot of, of the, uh, a lot of the white population just grapples onto that, right? And a lot of the mainstream uh, uh, fan base just grapples onto that for whatever reason. I feel that. And I think more broadly, like, do you feel as if, as, right, um, as certain individuals in the black community have more access to assimilation, right? Like, able to, you know, like, I think in 1965, you know, a, a, a brother probably wouldn't feel comfortable in a lot of white communities. And I think that now, right, people can, right? Like you can, you could go and not feel scared for your life. You know, uh, people have read the right books. Um, but 
do you feel like to an extent um, that assimilation, right, and that level of assimilation, and I'm not opining on whether it's good or bad, because uh, I, I like it, it can be a multitude of things. But do you feel like it lowers the ability of the black community to have a, a voice, right? Like when it's so much easier to kind of pass through, uh, if that makes sense. I wonder what your guys' thoughts are on that. I would say only to the extent um, that it kind of contributes to circling back to kind of where I began with this topic, the fetishization of black culture, right? By, by assimilating, by bringing black people and white people closer together across all domains of life, what we've done now is we've kind of taken uh, white bias, right? That previously may have expressed, it, expressed itself in, in more uh, kind of tangible or more uh, de jure, right? Elements of segre- segregation or, or racial discrimination. And now we've kind of created a new system in which that same white bias still exists uh, for a lot of people and in a lot of ways, but now it's kind of being channeled into well, now there are all these black people that are close to me, but but maybe they're not expressing or, or displaying the kind of notions of blackness that I was raised on or that my parents, you know, told me about uh, or that I've seen in, in pop culture. And so now they're kind of looking for new ways and new places uh, to still kind of get that same fix, right? Mm-hmm. And so that I think definitely contributes to a lot of what you guys are saying, right? What you're pointing to here is that that fetishization, it's still has a pernicious impact and still dictates in a lot of ways what gets elevated and what doesn't. There are a wide range of Black artists who talk about uh, a wide range of experiences and of topics that I think are important for all young Black people to hear uh, and to have on their playlists because one of those artists or multiple of those artists is going to resonate with their Black audience. But if you never get the opportunity to hear them because it's only a certain sect that has kind of been signed off by the white community as, oh, this checks our box of what we expect to hear from a black artist, then then I believe you're doing some damage there by leaving those those kind of artists and those kind of um, songs and lyrics and stories out of the mainstream narrative. Yeah. And I'll also just say, I'm related, but I love Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran's a wonderful artist. I didn't want to make, like, that's what I was careful about, like, white music, like, I, I mess with that. Sure. I love myself through no. Justin Bieber, yeah, you. like, you know, <laughs> I, 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 like, the lines of what is white music and what is not are a little bit blurred, but I wanted to give an example to be like, to Ed Sheeran mm. can be a representative of love, right? And, the, sure. yeah. and you know, that, like, kind of unproblematic, like, doughy-eyed, you know, and and mm-hmm. we have those same stories in our community, right? Mm-hmm. But like, are we hearing about that same sort of unproblematic love from black artists that get elevated to the mainstream? You get a bit of it from Rod Wave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you hear a bit of it, you know. Um, but I don't think that. I think that the the point is that the vision of love or relationships that's elevated from the black community, right, is is one that is right exclusive of the one elevated from so it's it's a lot more it, it, it's typically represented as a lot more toxic you know difficult like struggle love and i'm like <laughs> that's not all the love that we have in our community we have artists that talk about that kind of unproblematic <laughs> right. unproblematic love too right and we've had that historically and we have that in the present day but are those the artists 
that in the mainstream will get elevated, right? right? If you're like, hey, I love my wife. Remember Chance was Clown? Yeah, um, I love that album. He made that Big Day album, yeah. right? And people were like, oh, dang, this man just talking about loving his wife? Like, yeah. this is the corniest album of all time. And music aside, right, because, you know, there's a couple songs I like on the album. There's a couple songs I don't like. But I was like, that 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 wasn't necessarily digestible um, for broader audiences in the same way. So you have a black man talking about loving his wife, which is not necessarily what society um, has a space for black people to say, right? If they wanted to hear about loving their wife or loving their girlfriend, <laughs> they would listen to Ed Sheeran, right? Or I don't, or Sean Mendez, or you know, and and I, I think that to be able to represent the fullness of of, of our identity, um, there's work that we have to do to control our own narratives to be like, yes, this kind of unproblematic, this free flowing, this happy love, this joy, this resilience exists in our community. And when we're only able to be complementary to whiteness and not able to represent our full selves, I think you end up having a lot more of, you end up having a lot more of these issues because the toxic messages are, are those that are going to be represented as, yeah, we don't have this in, in these communities and this community can speak about this and that's their lane, but don't speak about this happy, overwhelming love because that's not, we already got I think it's, that, right? They, we don't want to hear I, that. I was, I was, I was just going to say, I um, think it's a little bit tough, right? Because here we're comparing two different genres, like comparing like rap versus like, it sure makes like pops, makes like, makes like pop music. Like, that is- that is true. I think that rap, just by design, like based off of the genre, is not meant to be one of those, you know, happy go lucky, like hey, you know, let's all, you know, go have fun, like, 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 like. That's just not, you know, the nature. The like the nature of rap, right, is to give you the cold, hard, unfiltered truth, right, whether you like it or not. Like rather, like, and I, I think a lot of a, a, a lot of what attracts people to is is just like how gritty and how like edgy it is right in that like no other music form you know really does that most music forms are trying to be elegant right and they're trying to you know be harmonious like rap doesn't care about any of that yeah. right i think because like sort of like the main sort of like the main uh i guess the main the main the main building block the main musical building block at least for the black community is rap it's, it's, it's sort of like of course those stories are going to be a little bit more overrepresented because like rap is just such a huge thing and it originated from the black community but, but even R and B, but like we have R and B singers, like we have like, granted, like I said, they're not as popular, but but like Alicia Keys, like Beyonce, even though, you know, if you look at if you if you look at sort of like um sort of like uh moving into like more current times, sure, a lot of a lot of the music is moving away from romance and and becoming more sexualized. But I think you could also make that trend about music in general, right? Um, I. I think you can. And I, I think, you know, you're right. It's it's nuance, right? Because there's what rap was in its in its origin. I also think the origins of rap are there are a lot of different types of rap, right? There's there's pop rap. There there's so many different sorts of rap that have gotten really big that I think it's difficult to generalize, but I think I would generally agree with you that it has been, rap has been known for giving the hard, gritty truth or um yeah. But like I think my point being like and again, there's no like 
numbers that I can tabulate and be like, it's definitively this and not that. Um, but I think it's something to think about where like for, you know, um, for R and B artists, especially right. For like as close as you can get to like, to like, because if you black and you sing, you make R and B, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you, you you can't be black and not, and not make R and B pretty much is, 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 is what they said. And so what are the sort of narratives or songs that get elevated? And, and, um, Yes, I think anytime we make broad statements, it's going to be an oversimplification and a generalization. But I do feel like there are grains of truth here, right? And, I, and, 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 and not that it's all or nothing, but just that I think it's important as a community that we're vigilant, right, about how our, our social mm. narrative is put forward. And how, like, the fact that being seen as other in a negative light can sometimes be mm-hmm. a-, a way into the mainstream in a way that's not truly reflective of the totality of the Black experience, in a way that silences maybe some of the more um, explicitly positive voices that we could have, and that should reach that level of mainstream yeah. stuff. I just think it's something to watch out for, right? Um, and um, I think with that, um, and on that tub- on that subject of having clear black voices, um, I love to dive into how we feel we have kind of evolved politically since 1965. Um, paying special attention to do we have members or community in positions where they can make substantive political change right do we have leaders that can explicitly advocate you know on behalf of substantive change for our communities um and on a kind of more granular not just like a a national level or a state level but even a community level um are we seeing those same leaders that can advocate on behalf of our communities and inspire change so Eric, I'm going to pass it on um, to you. I know you have a lot of thoughts on this subject, so I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Sure. Um, So politically, I think since 1965, again, I might have used the phrase earlier that I'll just go back to, which is that it's definitely a mixed bag. Um, So we had Brown v. Board of Education handed down in 1954, right? Since then, um, well, in 1965, schools were still segregated as as they were uh, going about desegregating schools with, quote unquote, all deliberate speed, which was essentially just slowly. Um, And even today, right, in a lot of places, schools are as segregated, if not more segregated than they were at that time. Um, Politically or legislatively, 1965, we had the Voting Rights Act, a landmark piece of legislation that put an end to literacy uh, tests at the polls. Uh, It also instituted what's known as the kind of pre-clearance mechanism. So essentially requiring states with a history of racial discrimination in their elections and in their voting laws to go to the federal government, uh, the civil rights division of the Department of Justice, and get clearance before they make changes to their voting laws. Um, Landmark piece of legislation definitely had uh, huge impacts, steps in the right direction. What did we have uh, nine years ago now? The Supreme Court basically gutted that act and, and kind of took out those pre-clearance mechanisms 
Um, and so it's been this kind of one step forward, maybe one and a half steps back at times in a lot of ways, legislatively and politically. I would say, though, that as we think about, you know, as you framed it, do we have kind of the leaders that are here for our community? Do we have the power to make change? I would say what we are as a Black community in a lot of ways, um, thankfully, kind of, I think, coming to consensus around is that we we can't look towards conventional definitions uh, of who those leaders are, right? Traditional conceptions of where those domains of power exist, uh, right? There is going to be no savior president or savior congressman or woman or Supreme Court justice uh, who's going to rescue us and advance our community. It really is going to come, I think, from community-based power and us depending on and relying on one another to make small scale and, and medium scale change in a way that has positive impacts in our community. When we think about um, just the way that, that our political system is structured, right? Uh, even when you have leaders, great leaders who emerge from the black community and kind of take on those conventional uh, roles of power, whether they be your local city councilor or whether they be the president of the United States or anyone in between, right? Uh, they themselves still cannot be fully freed from a system uh, that rewards self-interest, right? Mm -hmm. A system that's built around incentives that do not reward uh, kind of negotiating and compromise and finding common sense solutions, but rather reward kind of maintaining these, these long-standing protracted battles and fights that allow you to excite your base and gain more donors and, and kind of demonize the other side. So all of those things will continue to persist. And so as a Black community, we have to look at what are ways, what are organizations and ways that we can come together in our own communities to build true political power. And by that, I don't mean we need to elect this person to office, but like, hey, we need this resource in our community that doesn't currently exist. How can we come together and how can we make this happen? And that's where you look at, at least for me, like I'm a community organizer in Philly, right? So there are great organizations. <laughs> there are great organizations out here that are doing work. There's Black Voters Matter. There's Millennials in Action. There's PA Youth Vote, of which I'm a part. Organizations that are doing work to build political power um, at that community level and do not care, or, or at least is, is not within our, our kind of scope of our mandate to get a certain person elected to office, but rather it's to uh, instill the values of civic engagement and instill the values of ownership over community, of your own community, uh, to young people or to black people or to whoever the constituency in mind might be. So I say all that to say um, that I think as we begin to broadly recognize as a black community uh, that the change is not going to necessarily come from the places where your middle school and high school history teacher told you it might come from, uh, I think the better off we'll be. Yeah. That's deep. Josh, do you have yeah, any, uh, um, any additional thoughts there? No, I definitely agreed with um, sort of uh, Eric's intake, right? That there's like a lot of amazing organizations doing, you know, work on on the local level. I think especially like living in the age of social media that we do, I feel like it's a lot easier for um, in a lot of these and in, in a lot of these um, organizations to like find funding, to network, to build uh, 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 a to build up uh, sort of the grassroots. Um, uh, but I guess going off of the the original question, right? Like, so like uh, how have, do we think we've progressed politically? 
in my personal opinion, I, I don't think it's a mixed bag. I think it's, you know, for the most part, fairly um, clear. I think it's, you know, in in the 19, uh, before the passing of civil rights and voting at, in, in, in the voting acts, acts, right. I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but it was, but the, but the percentage of, of black people voting in the South was extremely small, right? Like, <laughs> like for the purposes of. Or just, just, uh, and yeah. actually just imagine right after, yeah. right? So like maybe say 1965 to Yeah, yeah, no, but that's my point, right? That like before the passing of these, uh, of the, uh, of these acts, right? That almost like no black person is out. Well, very, very, uh, an, an insignificant amount of black people uh, were actually voting. Past the passing of the laws, right? And you see, yeah. you see year after year the uh, the percentage of of um, of black people voting increasing like exponentially, like like um, just at amazing levels. And I, and I think uh, still, if you look at the demographics of like populations that still consistently um, have you know the highest uh, 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 highest voter turnout. For the most part, a, a large portion of those uh, populations come from the black community, um, and and so I think you know if, if you're looking just at you know political rights, you know how you know where have our political rights rights gone from you know 1960s till now? I think it's you know clear. Um, but with that said, yeah, I want to say though. If- if you don't mind if I interject just briefly on that point, I agree completely that the numbers tell that story, that, that participation uh, and access to the ballot box have increased in a lot of ways for Black people. But the reason that I bring up the ways in which the Voting Rights Act has mm-hmm. been gutted by the Supreme Court, for example, and the impact that that might have is because that exact data point uh, yeah. is kind of now co-opted and used right, by conservatives and, and has, it was used by Chief Justice John Roberts in that Supreme Court decision to kind of make the case for why we mm-hmm. don't need the pre-clearance mechanism anymore, right? Why we don't need the protections of the Voting Rights Act. Because they say, look, you know, that was 1965 and look at how yeah. much black people are voting uh, now and how that's increased. Segregation is gone. Racial discrimination is gone. Let's just take away all of these pre-clearance mechanisms. And now we, we see what's happening mm-hmm. across the country with, with voting rights, right? And attacks on voting rights in conservative state legislatures. So I only, I only bring up that point because I think it's, it's, it's a point of progress to be proud of, but it's also one to kind of ferociously defend and protect because it's- Yeah, no, I agree. I, right I, so yeah, I, I agree with that assessment, right? And I also feel like the, the issue of segregation, um, I don't know if I would necessarily put that in the same bucket as as political rights, right? Because um, I, I feel like that's just a, an entire world in of itself as to as, as to segregation, you know, uh, before Brown v. Board, during Brown v. Uh, after Brown v. Board and then today, right? Those are just like two entirely like uh, uh, worlds of buckets that we could talk about for hours. But um, but yeah. Well, civil rights are yeah. political rights. I, I I'd agree. I think I agree with Eric here. Like, I'm not saying all forms of segregation would fall into conversation about uh, political action, mm-hmm. but I think that like school segregation is a political decision, right? Like that's that's decided by which houses are going to go to which schools district, and politics can no. immediately so change that. Can, but can you? Um, but how would politics right? immediately change that? Well, who well, who's I, going to which schools and which schools are, are underfunded uh, is all a product, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, fundamentally, of, of property taxes, right? And it's your local government that's going to institute your local or state government that's going to be instituting those 
those rules and those schemes around property taxes. And that's really what lies behind a lot of the still existing uh, segregation that we have in schools across this country. You look at a place like Seattle, Washington, that has had numerous complaints against it over the course of the past few decades for its continued school segregation uh, problems. And you look at uh, there are numerous Supreme Court cases mm-hmm. and rulings that are on this in Texas and in other parts of the country. Um, all of those are political questions that our legislators are responsible for uh, answering and that our judges and our court system are ruling in all the time. And so I think that that's why it ties in very nicely and, and importantly to conversations around political rights. They're, they're questions that our politicians are handling. And if we're not involved in them, uh, then we're just going to reproduce some of the same inequalities that we've seen persist. No, I think I would absolutely agree. And even expanding beyond uh, scholastic segregation, housing segregation, the mm. decision to build or not build affordable housing in certain areas, um, right? Like uh, public transportation, the decision to build or not build public transportation. Mm. Like, you know, Josh, you and I, we live in D.C., right? And we know why, we know why the <laughs> yes. metro doesn't go to Georgetown, right? We know why the metro doesn't go to Georgetown, Um um, so yeah, I think I think a lot of the a, a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the aspects of segregation can directly tie to uh, um, to politics. Um, but yeah, I think I like I think I agree with a lot of what's been said, and I think that there's an, an interesting, not necessarily dichotomy, but breakdown because I feel like right when you look at um, you know 1965 and the passage of the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act you had a lot of widespread change and you had the passage of the great society laws, right. Uh, by Lyndon B. Johnson. Right. And so as a product of political action, we also saw like a lot of change in the country and the resources that people were afforded and kind of the beginnings of a, a truly modern kind of caring society. A lot of programs were put into place during that time. Um, and I think what's really interesting now is although we can have more political participation, right. Um, at certain levels that black people, you know, vote at a higher rate. And um, there's a lot of talk about getting out the vote. I think that there's actually um, a much more limited ability in the environment which we currently exist for voting, right, to actually translate to tangible action. Um, There is immense amount of conservatism, and I mean conservatism in the sense that the desire for things to remain the same, right, um, in the and inertia in the political system, and so voting more is not necessarily resulting in the difference in outcomes that we would expect. Right? It's not like we elect a you know a, a, a black person or person of color to office, and they immediately build a ton of affordable housing, um, and they desegregate. You know. Uh, schools on a state level um and that's not necessarily because of a desire not to but because of fierce um political opposition that uses any means at their disposal to kind of stop those things um and so while there's been increasing rates of ability to participate in the political system and even though many of those are at stake right now right um as we're seeing there's I think a more limited ability, it seems like, for po- politics at that level to kind of bring about change and even change that we've seen in the past. Um, like we have a we have a housing crisis right now. There is not enough housing being built in America. That is a political decision, 
right? Um, we have a lack of mixed use developments, right? We have poor access to cities um, and suburbs, right? That makes it more difficult for people to access jobs and opportunity, right? That drives up real estate prices in certain areas of the city and makes it inaccessible for people, right? That is also a political decision. Um, and uh, I feel like as a, as a society, really, this is bigger than black and white yeah. in this case. Um, <laughs> we're failing to kind of turn um, votes or support into tangible yeah. outcomes. Uh, so, benefit. to be clear, so I don't, um, like I said, I don't, um, I don't disagree with that point. It's actually sort of like where I was moving. Um, in that, um, if you know, you're just if you're just talking about sort of like political rights of black people today versus, um, you know, 1960s. Uh, in 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 terms of like, do we have the right to vote? Then I would say yes, we definitely improved. But if you're talking about okay. If you're talking about political rights in terms of uh, how how can we leverage these rights to you know bring about actionable change, then you know sh then 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 sure, then there's a lot more nuances. There's there's a lot more um, um, sort of like caveats and 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 um, you know things that just haven't you know worked out the way that you know we would expect them to work out. Uh, the point about you know if it's you know whether there's uh, more uh, whether it's harder to to to, to turn uh, votes into actionable things um, to today versus I don't know uh, 20 30 40 50 years ago I'm not sure about that um, I think Eric probably knows a little bit more about that than I did I think he, you re you read a book about sort of the 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 political parties and sort of their and sort of their institutional found uh, foundations or something or something to that extent right <laughs> I did, but you know that, that can be a conversation for another time. I'll put the yeah. link in the. I'll put the link to the book in the show notes. Put, put the yeah. Put the, <laughs> uh, I mean, we probably won't honestly put the link to the book. In. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that comparing the change that happened in 1965 to now, like I, I think it's just much harder to get things done. Period. Um, so one thing I want to I want to mention on that, and I I do completely agree. Um, right, that people are as our political system and incentives are currently constructed, um, and as has been demonstrated, particularly by Congress, uh, people are kind of disenchanted with the ability of their votes to make change largely at the federal level. But a lot of the work that um, myself and my fellow organizers do as it relates to boosting civic engagement, and particularly talking to young people about these issues, is making kind of the connection between the issues that people are seeing going on in their community, right? Like what's happening actually on your block that is bringing you concern uh, and the elected officials that may have some sway or may have some influence over that. And a lot of those conversations really end in us kind of identifying what's happening at the level of local politics, yeah. right? Who is your, your city councilor? Who represents your, your ward of, of the city? Uh, who's your local district attorney, right? As it relates to a lot of the important and kind of national conversations we've been having around race and justice and policing over the last few years, whether or not charges are brought against a police officer who kills uh, a Breonna Taylor or a George Floyd, a lot of those questions are impacted by who you have chosen to vote for or not vote for, or the election you've chosen to sit out of at the local level. Um, and so that's just something that I always remind people of as well, whenever I hear about, you know, why does my vote matter? Why does it count? It's like, 
okay, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that, you know, voting for your congressperson is going to build more affordable housing because in, in most mm. cases, like we have seen that not be the case. Yeah. Um, but what's happening at the local and state level oftentimes uh, matters a lot more than sometimes yeah, people give it credit for. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I 100%, um, I think, concur with that. I think that a disproportionate amount of the change that we can start to drive is at the community level. Um, I think in terms of political engagement, um, I think in terms of collective economics, um, right? I, I think that uh, there, there was something uh, powerful, I think, that you touched on, Eric, um, which is like there, there's no savior, right? Like there's no one person or individual that's going to drive all the changes that we need to see. There's a need for collective action at every single level. Um, to bring the world uh, closer to what it, it needs to be. Um, so I, I, I absolutely agree there is. Uh, um, it, 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 it starts it starts small and a lot of the changes that we can drive are at that community and local level. Um, so uh, you know I, I feel like we've touched a lot uh, on um, a lot of these topics and I think that we have a great segue to talk about unity within the black community. Um, and I want us to keep this relatively short because it could go it could go long um, because after unity I think we need to talk about what are some of the solutions to some of these challenges right like what are some of the things that, um, we would advocate for, we would do at a community level, at a, at a state level, at a national level to drive the change we need to see. But before getting into that, I'd love to hear um, uh, your perspectives on Black unity, right? Um, which is, uh, yeah, how do you feel about Black unity? And not is it good or bad. It's, <laughs> it, I, I'm, I'm assuming it's a good thing, but we feel like <laughs> Uh, so I'm, I'm a, 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 a pro black unity. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think um, it's. All right, Jeff, take I it think away. it's tough. Um, I think that uh, it's tough because if you like, if you, because if, I feel like a lot of times you approach this question like um, assuming sort of like. Uh, sort of a homogenous black experience, right? Someone, you know, come up from the, come up from, you know, um, sort of like humble beginnings, um, and, you know, sort of like family, friends, everyone around them, um, sort of like, you know, coming from like low income backgrounds. And so, you know, when you think about unity, you're thinking about sort of like specific issues that can like um, help that experience. But then like you think about there are a lot of, you know, black people that don't necessarily have that experience, right? There are a lot of like, wealthy uh wealthy wealthy black people that that um you know for whatever reason might have different economic interests um and so uh i think i think if, if you think about unity in terms of like the overwhelming majority of the black community and like uh, coalescing around sort of a set of values or a set of issues um um i would think you know um comparing com uh what is it like today i feel like it's strong you know especially when you think about uh everything that happened with um, well, everything that's happened over like the past, the, the 2010s were just like a crazy decade. You think about like Colin Kaepernick, uh, 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 George Floyd, um, the variety of different, um, sort of, uh, uh, police killings that were caught on tape and they were nationalized. Um, 
across that in, across that entire decade. I feel like it was it was it was it was an awakening moment for um, for America um, as a whole, but I feel like it was also a very unifying moment for um, for um, the Black community to like sort of like see a lot of a lot of um, a, a lot of sort of like these struggles and these issues that you know many Black people know just to be like an everyday thing to see them nationalized to see them on t- to to see them on CNN. Right and and to like and to like sort of like see that pain um, sort of um, broadcast for everyone to see. But I feel like was a very like unifying um, yeah. periods and very unifying moments um, for us as a community. Um, even when you think about you know upper in, up um, upper um, income um, black people think about like Michael Jordan during the during the. Uh, during the George Floyd protest, you know, committing like, I think it was a hundred million dollars over 10 years. Michael Jordan, who is someone that speaks out on no social issue, who, you know, who's, who's like, who's, who's, um, I forget the famous line. It was like, I think it was like, oh, Republicans buy sneakers too, right? It was the famous line, right? And so like, even, you know, someone that's, you know, straight capitalist, um, you know, was able to, um, to um, sort of commit to um, the cause, you know, a hundred million dollars worth into the cause. You know, um, I think if you think about Black Unity in terms of compared to the 1960s, I don't think you can, I don't think you can make that comparison because like society was a lot different. I think, you know, it's not even a contest, right? You think about sort of like the civil rights movement growing mostly out of, you know, growing mostly out of like local churches, local church networks, right? Where people are meeting together like Sunday after Sunday, you know, getting the word and then like discussing these issues after, right. That builds a different type of community than yeah. sort of like what we have now, like in the digital age and we're like, you know, the rates of like black people going to church and the rates of like, you know, the sort of like nuclear family, the sort of like uh, local community element isn't as, you know, strong. Um, so I think, you know, the two different communities I definitely sixties, you know, it was definitely more unifying period. But like I said, the twenty tens I think was a wake up moment for a lot of us. Um, white people as well as, you know, um the black community. Eric, do you have any thoughts there? I'll I'll keep my thoughts brief. I agree with, with just about all that Josh said. Um two things that come to mind are are one that I feel like black unity is hard to achieve um, like true black unity is hard to achieve uh, this is largely contributed to by the fact of as we discussed earlier this bifurcation of the kind of black experience particularly now like josh was saying there's kind of just a lot more to rally around it almost seems like or relate to uh or advance together in 1965 that required that black unity that required that community and even then not everyone agreed really on like the best way to achieve that stuff right so you then fast forward us now to the year of our lord 2022 and there are just such a wide array of black experiences i feel like that it's kind of hard to agree on kind of a common black agenda um certainly in this country but like if we we broaden our scope right and think about across the world too there's just so many different interests at play that they're inherently almost going to be kind of microcosms um, of support. And so it's, it's in a way, which leads me to my second point, uh, reassuring, I think, to see when some of these like major events, quite frankly, a lot of the tragedies happen in the black community that we see like 
a lot of those lines start to fade a little bit at least and disappear and then kind of black people come together. I think it's unfortunate that it kind of takes tragedies um, or atrocities or scandals or whatever the case may be to create some of that unity. Um, but I'd say that that's, that's really where you see black unity these days. It's, it's unfortunate as it is. It's kind of like, all right, this, this terrible thing happened to a member of our community. Now let's come together around it and kind of forget some of our differences. Yeah, I hear that. Um, I hear all of that. I think for me, like, I, I think all of that resonates with me. Um, there are a multitude of different black experiences, and especially now, black experiences can vary so wildly. Um, but I think that, like, one of the things that I think is important to recognize is not all black interests are created equal, right? Um, so as a community, we shouldn't necessarily be rallying around Jay-Z's interests, right? Because Jay-Z as a billionaire wants a certain sort of tax structure or, or might want a certain sort of tax structure, right? Um, and his interests are not equivalent in my mind to the interest of, right, um, uh, a lot of, you know, middle-class, low-income black folk that, you know, need affordable housing, that need... Um, that need quality education, um, that need certain resources. Um, and I feel like as a community, we should still be able to rally around those causes as well. Um, and, and those of us of privilege, right. Um, should be able to, to kind of, to recognize that and, and still rally around those issues, even if they're not directly aligned with our immediate personal interests. Um, I think that uh, the uh, other thing that comes to mind as well is what interests and interests do we rally around as a community? Um, because like one thing that I found is that there's certain aspects of the black community that are common no matter what, right? Um, and you, all of us, right, have experience racial profiling, despite the fact that, you know, um, you know, we went to Harvard, right? Despite the fact that we're very high achieving and it's very issue for us to rally around things that are, are, are common. Uh, but I think it's important for us to evaluate whether those are the highest leverage things to rally around, right? Are we, do we rally around, uh, racial profiling over affordable housing um, or uh, over uh, equitable education because that's something that can still affect rich black people, um, right? Um, and should it have the same place of primacy if we're considering the needs of the entire community? Um, so I don't have the answer to that. I don't know, um, but I think that's an important question to ask. And yeah, it's been a minute. So we're getting ready to get into our uh, last uh, kind of question, which is how do we move forward, right? Um, we've kind of talked about uh, kind of progress um, and challenges, and I think that the question that remains is that how do we as a community move forward? How do we take it from here to continue to um, demand more of America, um, Demand more for Black people. So, uh, Eric, how about you start us off on this one here? 
Sure. Step one, I think, is like just keep having conversations like this, um, right, across the Black community. Part of what made my college experience so fulfilling was the opportunity to have these kind of conversations with you guys on just the the one-off, like, serendipitous moments of just, like, let's just get into it about topic X, Y, or Z. Um, I think beyond that, though, like, a lot of the things that we've touched on, a lot of things that we've talked about, uh, so many good points have been made. Uh, I'll reiterate some of the ones that I think rang true for me. Probably like <laughs> because I said them. Number one. <laughs> Number one. Yes, oh. Wow. Okay, Eric. Go ahead. Go ahead, Eric. Yeah, you know, I, just, I keep an I, I keep an ear out for for what I say. Um, <laughs> don't wait for a savior, right? No one, no one is coming to rescue the black community, and so we're gonna have to rely on one another. Uh, we're gonna have to try to find ways to build that black unity, uh, not just in times of tragedy or in times of stress, but also in the in between times too, in the times of triumph and in the times of joy. Um, I think continue to keep the pressure on our politicians, although we've, we've covered, I think, in a really great way in this conversation, the ways in which that is not going to be our, our kind of end-all, be-all solution um, to solving our problems, but do keep the pressure on, do stay involved, do get involved, especially keep an eye on what's happening at your local level and at your state level, um, and look for ways that your vote and your voice uh, has an opportunity to advance uh, the black community that you're a part of or that's that's around you and then just from the wealth perspective kind of ending where we began here on the economics invest in black people uh, invest in black businesses to help grow their wealth generationally so that we can try to do a little bit better uh, over the course of the next 55 years uh, in terms of closing that that wealth gap those are the things that come to mind for me yeah yeah, um, reparations, as in not uh, make me pay any more taxes to the government. I think though, I think <laughs> no, but um, I do think <laughs> like just <laughs> it depends on what we can afford. I'm not, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but but I, I I think reparations are part of it though. Um, like for me, like um, like a lot of you know, uh, the issues that you still see sort of reverberating from, um, from, you know, uh, the United States, um, uh, racist past, most of them link back to wealth and most of them link back to, um, um, to, um, specifically, in, uh, uh, income inequality and wealth inequality. And I think about like a lot of, a lot of times we sort of just brush over, over in, in a, in, a, in a history that, you know, the middle class was built by the federal government, right? It wasn't built by, you know, private, it wasn't built by the private sector. Like a lot of the, a lot, a lot of the, um, a lot of the, 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 um, the generational homes that a lot of um, wealthy white families inherited, you know, were, were homes and land given to them, you know, um, through, you know, through um, two different ways of, uh, uh, in the, 1800s as well as in the 1900s, right? And a lot of benefits that um, that were um, you know given to uh, white people in the 20th century, you know, they weren't extended to black people. And I think about like sort of like as soon as 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 soon as sort of black people started getting freedom, started getting you know more opportunity, then you know we push this idea of like laissez-faire economics, right? Like everybody for themselves, like wait, they they already like you gave them. <laughs> 
Y'all want to They're going to be out land. Right, right, right. Loans to buy right, so I, 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 I think you know the biggest issue is that you know we we don't have a wealth base to build off of, right? And we're you know competing, trying to compete at least, um, you know, while um, you know just starting the race while uh, uh, everyone else is you know a mile down the road. I think you know just any any kind of uh, any, any kind of benefit that'll put, you know, more money in black people's pockets and like enable them and empower them to um, sort of build wealth for themselves and their family. Uh, I think also education um, on a variety of different levels, whether you're talking about schooling education, you're talking about financial education, we're talking about higher education. I think there needs to be, you know, more investment there. I don't know where I'm getting all this money from. I'm, you know, I'm pulling out of Uncle Joe's pocket. But like, but like, yeah, just uh, more investment in in um, in um, black education all around. Whether you're talking about HBCUs, whether you're talking about low income black communities, I think the segregate because schools are so segregated now. It's you know it's tough um, to uh, to uh, to uh, sort of like think about okay, how do we you know we have to deal with the segregation issue before we can deal with the unequal funding issue, um, but. Yeah, um, either way, you know, black students, the amount that gets spent on them is just disproportionately lower than the amount that gets spent on white students. Um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, I think, I think, you know, like, all those are just a starting point of, you know, sort of reaching uh, that sort of level of equal opportunity. And then from there, uh, sort of trying to uh, progress into full equality. But, you know, those are just my thoughts. Yeah. Absolutely. I think uh, all of that has been hitting the nail on the head for me. Um, I think for me, I'm going to take like, I, I'm not going to go necessarily solution by solution, although I'll, I'll, I'll try to because there are solutions across all of these categories that can get you know pretty granular and specific. Um, but I think that one of the important steps is being able to have a black narrative, right? And being able to have our voices and our issues heard in their full nuance, and then being able to, as a community, push for and advocate for targeted solutions for those issues. Um, because right now, I feel like black issues are kind of lost in the sauce, right? Um, and uh, like, I, I think that you know we all have an individual idea of what solutions should be. But there's no necessarily collective idea that we can all like work to push for. Um, and I think that knowing where we're going or what we want, right, and having a general knowledge of that is an essential precursor to kind of getting what we want. And so I think being able to have black voices and white voices and voices along the color spectrum speaking to these issues and speaking to specific solutions for these issues is an essential step. Um, in addition to that, I feel like engagement at the community level, at a local level, a love for um, uh, our, our communities, a love for uh, one another, a willingness to work with one another, um, both independent of the political system, via collective economics, um, and, and via supporting uh, each other's businesses and through the mechanisms of the political system um, at a local level is essential. And then simultaneously 
working on a national level to advocate for broad scale policy changes that can make a, a big difference. Um, because universal health care make a huge, huge difference, right, in the lives and outcomes of of of, of black people. Uh, more funding in 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 uh, more fund- funding into public transportation, right? Huge difference, right? More funding to affordable housing, huge difference. And so these problems are multifaceted and need to be attacked from multiple different angles uh, at the individual level, at the community level, at the local level, at the state level, at the national level. Um, and I think that we need to get clear and get crisp on what these solutions are, right? And then be able to clearly advocate for these solutions that will not just benefit black people, by the way, right? That will benefit people across the board. And, and there probably should be some solutions specifically for black people especially in an American context, without a doubt. Um, even though I have serious doubts as to whether America will ever let that happen. <laughs> because if there's one thing that American history has shown is that black people <laughs> can't have nothing just for black people. That's, that's, that's for sure. Um, uh, but yeah, and so I think um, action at all levels at a clear narrative um, are my desires. And I think with those factors... We'll be able to make some uh, some progress with all due speed, and actually have it be all due speed. <laughs> um, Absolutely, yeah. So, dang, that was an amazing conversation, y'all. I am so thankful and grateful to have had you all um, on the podcast. I feel like we all learned a lot and were able to share some just really great ideas. Um, I'll definitely be bringing y'all back. Uh, you know, for, for some more conversations at some point in the future. Um, but before we kind of close, I'd like to ask, do you guys have any closing thoughts about anything, anything that's been on your mind that you'd want to share any resources that you'd want to share? Um, just, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, like there's no show notes, so I'm not going to share any, any resources, but, um, no, thank you. Thank you for having us on. We'd love to be back on again. We're a package deal, certainly. So if you're gonna have Josh, you gotta have me, and, and vice versa. But uh, I just I would send love and joy and care to all of my Black people out there listening. Uh, keep having these conversations. Like I said, they're important, uh, even if they're conversations that you're not used to having with your Black friends. Start having them. Yeah, um, Eric speaks for us both. Uh, I'm well. He's my Chuck. I'm his Ira. You don't get that reference. Watch Billions. That's the only. That's the only resource I would give. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's Black people in it. <laughs> I know it's not. But yeah, no, I, I completely agree with everything you said. Once again, thank you for having us on. We appreciate you, Michael, um, for starting this conversation. Absolutely. It's been a blessing to have y'all on. And yeah, just, yeah, we just need to keep on having these conversations and taking that next step um, to these actions, right? At a community level, right? Um, At a state level and at a national level. And really that's what I want to see because when we get aligned on what our goals are, there is no stopping us. Um, So I'm excited for what the future has. Um, Likewise. Black community in America, we've been through um, a, a lot uh, and um, the resilience in the face of constant uh, persecution and oppression is remarkable. 
And I feel like we're at that point where we can really start to take that next step and continue to make uh, those dreams uh, that our, our, our forefathers had uh, a reality. So thank you all for being on this podcast. Um, and yeah, hope to have you all soon. With that, <laughs> peace out. Peace out.